The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word, that your word illuminates our thinking. It reveals to us truth. It gives us the framework for interpreting everything in life. And it is on in the light of your word that we see light. Now, Father, as we continue our study in the basic foundations for living, we pray that you would challenge us with your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the course of our study on these basic foundations for living, I've been looking at the responsibilities or duties of the priesthood for the last couple of weeks. In the last few weeks, we looked at prayer and the importance of prayer in the believer's life. In Acts 2.42, we talked about the fact that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And fellowship was then broken down in an apostrophal clause, parenthetical clause. Fellowship was the breaking of bread and prayer. So prayer was one of the things that the early church devoted themselves to in terms of fellowship with God as well as the Lord's table. But in the list of those things that the early church was devoted to, the first thing was the apostles' teaching. The exposition, explanation, the instruction of the Word of God. Teaching the Word of God. I want you to open your Bibles with me as we begin to Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. The believer is not only... The believer priest is not only responsible to pray before the Lord, to go directly before His throne of grace, but he is responsible to the Word of God, to know the Word of God, to understand the Word of God, and to place the Word of God in a position of high priority. We come to Romans 12.1 and we read, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, these initial two verses in Romans chapter 12 really form a structural shift in the book of Romans. A very important shift takes place here. In the first 11, verse, or 11 chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been going through an intensely logical development of the basic doctrines related to the Christian life. Um, He has started off talking about justification 
and the righteousness of God, which is the foundation for everything in the book of Romans. But in Romans chapter 12, he shifts gears from talking about the doctrinal foundation of the Christian life, the basic doctrines related to sin, justification by faith alone, sanctification, and God's justice in relation to his people Israel, which is covered in chapters 9 to 11, to application. Chapters 12 through 16 focus on the application of the teaching in the first 11 chapters. So there's this trans, uh, a transition here that begins, therefore, he is drawing a conclusion, therefore, in light of everything that's covered from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11, Paul is going to challenge his readers to a particular course of action. Now, there's, in the New King James, which I use, there's some vocabulary here that uh, is not quite as contemporary as other places in the New King James, and so we need to explain it a little bit, but nevertheless, it's understandable to the English reader. I beseech you is the Greek verb parakaleo. Parakaleo means to urge someone to do something, to challenge another believer to a particular course of action, to appeal to a believer to advance in the Christian life. It is, it's a verb that has its root in the concept of encouragement, exhortation, challenge. The verb here is a present active imperative. Now, grammar is important because it shows us the emphasis of the author's thought. And a present imperative means that this is supposed to be uh, an ongoing action that is characteristic of a believer's life. So he is encouraging or challenging his readers to a particular course of action. So he says, therefore, in light of all that I have said, I urge you, I challenge you to... Uh, this course of action, brethren, that is, believers, by the mercies of God, so that his basis is grace. The basis is the grace of God. Mercy is grace in action. There's a couple of different words here in the Greek that refer to mercy, but the concept is the, is a reference to the character of God. What Paul is saying is, because you understand the character of God specifically with reference to his grace... Now, why would he say that? Because he's gone back and he has given a detailed logical explanation of God's grace from chapters 1 through chapter 11. The focal point of the whole book, or the key word in the whole book of Romans, is righteousness. It deals with the righteousness and justice of God that the righteous, the person who is righteous by faith, shall live. I think there's a mistranslation in that initial chapter. Usually it's translated, the righteous shall live by faith, and they have the by faith associated with the wrong concept there. It's the one who is righteous by faith, that is the justified individual, shall live. And the ultimate thrust of the book of Romans is how the justified person shall live. So he begins in the first three chapters talking about the fact that that all men are sinners. In the first chapter, he talks about how the Gentiles have rejected God 
and are all under condemnation. In chapter 2, he focuses on the Jews and how the Jews are all under condemnation. Gentile and Jew alike have fallen short of the righteous standard of God. They have not lived up to God's righteous standard. So how then can a man be justified? So in chapter 3, he concludes that by showing that the penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And this comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 4, he talks about the principle of justification. That we become justified not by our own works, not by our own efforts, not by our own morality. We are justified by trusting in God. The Old Testament model is Abraham. That Abraham was justified not because of who he was or what he did, but because he trusted God. At the instant of trust in Christ as Savior, God imputes to each one of us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So that's what justification is all about, that at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we are justified. That is grace. It's not due to anything that we have done. We are justified freely by God's grace. By His grace then, by virtue of being justified, we are we have peace with God. This is Romans 5.1. We have peace with Him. We are reconciled to God in actuality. That lays the foundation for our spiritual life, which is developed in Romans 6-8, through 8, which is the best development of Paul's concept of sanctification or the Christian life. The believer, because he was identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection at the instant of Uh, Faith alone in Christ alone is now in a new position. He has new privileges. He's a new creature in Christ, Paul says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, because we're identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, we are to live a different way. That's Romans 6 and 7. Romans 6 lays the foundation. Romans 7, Paul explains the struggle he had trying to live up to God's righteous standard on his own, and he concludes he just couldn't do it. The more he tried to keep the law, the more he tried to do what the Bible said to do, the more he realized what a miserable, rotten sinner he was. But finally, when you come to Romans 8, for the first time, he mentions the Holy Spirit. There, and he begins Romans 8, 1, Therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There is no basis for judgment to those who are in Christ. Why? Because we're justified by grace. Back in uh, Romans chapter uh, 4. So we have no condemnation and God has given us the Holy Spirit and we have a, an exposition in Romans chapter 8 on the relationship of the Holy Spirit as the power source for living the Christian life. Romans 7, he couldn't live up to God's justification on his own. Romans 8, because of the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit, Paul is able to live up to God's righteous standard. Then, of course, he concludes by showing how God's righteousness is related to how he has dealt with Israel and their rejection of the Messiah in Romans 9, 10, and 11, ending with the fact that God's righteousness would indeed be vindicated historically because he would be true to his Old Testament prophets and all Israel would be saved. And that's the conclusion of Romans chapter 11. So all of that demonstrates God's grace, God's grace to the Gentile, God's grace to the Jew. Therefore, 
He says, I urge you on the basis now that you have an understanding of the mercies of God, that you understand His grace in action down through history, that you do something, that you present your bodies. And here the word bodies doesn't just mean your physical body. It's a figure of speech called a synecdoche. You were never taught that. Trust me, you were never taught that in any English class that you ever covered. There's a classic book out written by Bullinger back in the turn of the last century on figures of speech in the Bible that's about three inches thick, and we just I just about tore my copy up in uh, in one semester in Psalms class in at uh, in seminary. And a synecdoche is where you take a noun that stands for something that it is related to. So so the noun which refers to a part of something actually stands for everything in relationship to it. So it's called the synecdoche of the part when a part is put for the whole. It's a figure of speech by which one word receives something by transference from another word which it is internally associated with by the connection of two ideas. And what that means, if you boil it all down, is that body here is used to refer to all of the person, the totality of the person, body, soul, and spirit, everything in a person's life. So what Paul is saying here is, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself, the totality of your person, everything in your life. The word present is the Greek word parastano. It's an aorist active infinitive of purpose. This is the purpose of his challenge. And it means to make something available, to place something at the disposal of someone else, to serve someone else. The idea in presenting yourself to God is to make yourself usable for God in the Christian life, in Christian service to not be in rebellion to God, but to be in a position of obedience to God so that God can use you as he is working out his plans and purposes in life. So the basic mandate here is that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, what exactly does sacrifice mean? Some people get real concerned because they think of sacrifice only in terms of a, a, the uh, uh, loss of life, for example, in the Old Testament, it's sacrifices and offerings, and there's a distinction sometimes made between an offering being giving something to God and sacrifices where a life is taken. But, and that some people also get the idea when they think about sacrifice, excuse me, when they think about sacrifice, that sacrifice somehow involves some sort of torturous, giving up something that, that hurts, that is something that, that uh, is so dear to me that it, it, it's such a painful thing to give this up. And that's a misunderstanding of the concept of, uh, of the concept of sacrifice. So we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now sacrifice means something else, but I got ahead of myself here in terms of a couple of slides. I want to back up to the word present a minute. This word present, parastano, is a word, as I said, that means to place something at one's disposal, at the disposal of God. And this word is used several times in Romans 6. And as I said a minute ago, as I summarized Romans, 
that Romans 6 lays the foundation for our spiritual life. And the word is used there a number of times. For example, in Romans 6.13, Paul says, Do not present your, your members, that is your body, your life, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. In other words, don't make your life uh, available to the use of your sin nature. But present yourselves, in other words, make yourself available to God as being alive from the dead. Why? Because you are alive from the dead. You were born again at the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone. And we're also to present our members, that is, again, it's the same idea our whole life, as instruments of righteousness to God. We are to be, as it were, uh, instruments in the hands of God as uh, surgical instruments would be in the hands of a surgeon. And, of course, a surgeon wouldn't want to use uh, infected, dirty, rusty tools. He would want to use cleanse tools. And so we have to be sanctified first. That's 1 John 1, 9. And we have to be in that process of growing uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to be instruments of righteousness to God. Romans 6, 16, he reiterates that idea. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey... You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience to righteousness. So there's an emphasis here on volition. Presenting yourself emphasizes your volitional responsibility. The scripture in Romans 6 shows that you're doing one of two things at any moment in time. You are either presenting yourself to your sin nature to be a slave or servant of your sin nature, or you are presenting yourself to God to be a slave or servant to God. There's no middle ground. There's no position of neutrality. There's no gear shift in the Christian life with a position called neutral where you can just coast along. You're either in drive or reverse, one or the other. You're either in a position to be utilized by God or not to be utilized by God. Romans 6.19, Paul says, Again, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That's the weakness of your sin nature. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, this is the characteristic of the unbeliever who presents his life as a slave of uncleanness and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now as believers, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And I would translate that last word in the sense of sanctification. Uh, the word holy often is misunderstood as having some level of moral uh, purity. It is the fact that we are to be growing and advancing in the spiritual life. So Romans 6 emphasizes this idea again and again and again that is the focal point of Romans 12.1, and that is that we are to make a volitional decision to present, to put ourselves in a place of service to God. Those two ideas are inherent within the word, volitional responsibility and service to God. So, in terms of application, before we can effectively serve God, then we have to make certain decisions, not one-shot decisions that we make, but day-to-day decisions, sometimes moment-to-moment, hour-to-hour decisions, that we are going to serve God and operate on a changed scale of values, a different scale of priorities and this is foundational to our spiritual advance so Paul says I challenge you I urge you therefore brethren 
on the basis of your understanding of God's grace in your life that you make yourself available, the totality of yourself available as a living sacrifice. Now, let's look at the meaning of sacrifice. Sacrifice, according to Webster's Dictionary, this is just a definition of the English term, but the English term is a sound translation from the Greek. Sacrifice is an act of offering. This is the first and most common meaning of the word. It is an act of offering to a deity something valuable. The act of offering to a deity something valuable. It is not emphasizing the act of that this somehow hurts or somehow this is taking something away. It doesn't have this sort of ascetic notion that, oh, I'm, I'm hurting, I'm, I'm taking something I love away from my life, that, that there's some sort of uh, giving up till it hurts idea. It is simply the fact that you are recognizing that you're not going to do some things that are fine, that may be fine, good, decent activities because you want to do something else that has a more significant or valuable uh, uh, emphasis. So it's the idea of offering to God something valuable. Furthermore, the definition goes on to read, it has the, the idea of giving up the giving up of something or setting aside of something of value, such as time, money, energy, in order to do something else. So sacrifice can involve the fact that I have a certain amount of money and I could go out and buy something I I want or just go out to dinner or whatever, and instead I want to use that to help somebody else or to give it to the church or give it to a a missionary, something of that. It doesn't mean that, oh, I'm being so sacrificial. It doesn't have this idea necessarily of hurting in that sense. It's simply a choice that I'm going to use this uh, resource, whatever it may be, in order to serve God. It could be time, and I'm going to use that time to teach in prep school. I'm going to use that time to help in some other ministry around the church or some other ministry with helping a missionary. It could be just giving up energy in order to do something else, and the something else has to do with serving the Lord in some capacity of Christian service. It could be just giving up time when you could stay home watching sports or TV or going out and participating in sports or being involved in some hobby that you enjoy so that you can go to Bible class and take in the Word of God. Now, that is, according to a strict definition of the word sacrifice, that is a sacrifice. But some people, when they hear the word sacrifice, they think of something somehow that hurts. It's sort of like some people have the idea that when you hear the word suffering, that suffering involves some sort of pain or difficult time that you really suffer uh, subjectively in the midst of adversity, whereas the biblical concept of suffering is more what we talk about when we talk about adversity. So sacrifice is the act of simply taking something of value in our life, time, money, energy, and we're going to use it in the service of God. So Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, on the basis of your understanding of the grace of God, that you present, that is, make available every area of your life as a living sacrifice that is holy, that is sanctified, that idea that is set apart to the service of God. That's what sanctification is. So all these ideas are, are synonymous. He's, 
Paul is just taking these, these terms, these concepts that are very close to one another and piling them up by using these different uh, synonyms. Offering your, presenting your bodies a living, uh, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Holy means set apart to God, acceptable to God, has to do with the fact that it is based upon the, the, the reality that uh, you are already justified. And then he concludes by saying that this is your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. In fact, in the, in the New American Standard, it translates it, your spiritual service of worship, which certainly brings out some important nuances of the idea, but I don't think it uh, really nails the, the concept. The word that is translated reasonable, and you have the two words, reasonable service. The word that is translated reasonable is the Greek word logikos. Logikos. L-O-G-I-K-O-S from the word logos, which means word. We think of it in terms of word, but logos also has to do with reason or rationality because what lies behind words is reason and thought in terms of communication. So logikos, which is a word from which we get logic, means that which pertains to reason, that which is reasonable or rational, as in something based in rational thought, intelligent meditation, reflection, and understanding of the implications and instructions of God. In other words, it's not just some sort of emotional dedication of your life. This verse is often used in some churches to say, well, you need to dedicate your life to the Lord. And they take the presenting yourselves uh, as a living sacrifice as just sort of a one-shot one decision, but that's not it. It's emphasizing uh, a standard operating procedure there that you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, that is, it is the result of thought. It's a result of understanding doctrine. It's the result of understanding what God has communicated to you. It is a thought-out decision based upon an underlying rationale. And then the last word is the word that I'm really focusing on in this whole study, and that is latreia the word translated worship. It is a word that is used in the uh, Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, again and again to describe the work of priests in the tabernacle or the temple. So this one word that's used here that's translated service or in the New American Standard it's translated worship is a word that focuses our attention on our ministry our service to God as priests to God. This is part of what the text means as our rational or logical uh, service that's the result of understanding the grace of God, presenting our entire life, body, soul, spirit, everything that we do, as a living sacrifice, as something that is made available to the use of God uh, during our life on the earth, that this is part of our service to him. Now, it doesn't stop there. The next verse develops the idea in terms of more commandments, Romans 12, 2. 
and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, first there has to be the decision that I'm going to have a certain scale of values, a certain priority in my life, that I'm going to put the service to God first. But the service to God to be effective flows from knowledge. It's not just I'm going to go serve God and let me uh, start uh, doing this around the church and that around the church, teaching prep school or whatever, and then somehow spiritual growth will result. What is given in verse Two is the foundation for being able to carry out the mandate of verse 1. Do not be conformed to this world. That is, do not have your thinking conformed to the thinking of the culture around you. Every people group has a culture. You have large groups of people, for example, in uh, the United States or in Europe or in Asia. They have certain cultural distinctives. But you can go to smaller groups. You can talk about the culture of Western Europe, or you can talk about the culture of France. You can talk about the culture of the uh, British. You can talk about the culture in uh, down in Italy. There, each group has different characteristics, but even then you can subdivide those groups down into smaller groups. You could talk about the culture in northern Italy versus southern Italy versus Sicily. You could talk about the culture in New England versus the culture in the South versus the culture in Texas. You could talk about the culture of East Texas versus the culture of West Texas. You can talk about the culture of Houston versus the culture of San Antonio. I mean, every group has a culture. You can talk about the culture of West Houston Bible Church versus the culture of some other church. So every group of people, every business, you can talk about the culture of of uh, ExxonMobil versus the culture of Texaco versus the culture of Sitgo. Each business has its own culture, its own characteristics, and that culture is an outgrowth of the values and the priorities of that group of people. It is ultimately an outgrowth of their uh, belief system in reality. What is reality? What are we trying to do? Why are we here? What is our purpose in life? So that everything in a culture ultimately is grounded in religious presuppositions. Ultimately, it's always going to be grounded in this concept of what is the ultimate reality and what am I trying to, uh, to do in this life in terms of ultimate reality. If ultimate reality is just uh, eternal matter, then that's all man is, is matter, and so that's going to produce a certain concept of certain values and who man is and what society is all about. But if their ultimate reality is a God, who is a personal, infinite God, then that's going to produce a completely different set of values. And man, if man is created in the image of God, as the Scripture says, and we believe that, then that's going to change how we understand uh, who and what we are. So that's the concept of worldliness, is man's culture apart from the impact of the Word of God. And we're all influenced by that in some way or another. Every human culture is a mix of human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. And so you grew up, in, and by the blessings of God, we grew up in the United States of America, where we had uh, tremendous freedom to hear about God and to hear the truth of his word. And many of you have been 
faithful students of the Word of God for many years. And others of you, this is something new for you. But all of us at the starting point had a mixed bag of ideas and values. And we have to, we're, all our Christian life is a process of going through that mixed bag of ideas and values and throwing out that which isn't biblical and replacing it which, with that which is biblical. And that's what verse 2 talks about. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that what is that good what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now the verse begins: Don't be conformed to this world. Now the world, uh, another element to that concept of world is the spirit of the times, the spirit of the age. So we live in a time that is characterized by postmodernism. That is the idea of the spirit of the age. Uh, the German word is Zeitgeist. Uh, it's, that's why the Greek word here is Ionos and not Cosmos. It has to do with the spirit of the age. Don't be conformed to the spirit of the age, but be transformed with the renewing, the metamorphosis, the overhaul of your thinking. Now, how does that take place? Well, that overhaul of your thinking is foundational to what verse 1 is challenging you to do in terms of your priesthood, in terms of serving God. So the starting point for serving God is to overhaul your thinking with the Word of God. The starting point for serving God is not getting involved in Christian service activities, but the starting point is sitting in Bible class to learn the Word of God so that your thinking is transformed and from a foundation of spiritual maturity and biblical knowledge, you can then serve God from a foundation of knowledge and not from a foundation of ignorance. Unfortunately, most churches try to reverse that. They try to argue that Christian service produces spiritual growth, and that has the cart before the horse. It is the study of God's Word and the, and the uh, changing of our thinking that is the foundation for accurate uh, spiritual service. Now, all of this is simply to establish the principle that the only way to, that we can exchange the human viewpoint in our soul for divine viewpoint is to study the Word. That's, that's it. That is related to being, a, to being available to God to serve Him as part of our priesthood. So the believer priest is to put the Bible at the center of his life. The believer priest, to carry out his role as a priest, has to put the Bible at the center of his life. Now let's just begin with a few passages that emphasize why the Bible is so important and so valuable. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 is a couple of verses familiar to everyone. All Scripture is literally breathed out by God, not inspired by God, not in the sense that Shakespeare was inspired when he wrote his plays or that Milton was inspired when he wrote Paradise Lost or some other writer is, or musician is inspired when they write a piece of music. It's the idea of God breathing out. God is the ultimate source 
of what is in the Scriptures. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This is not the product of just human authors. There's a divine author who writes through a human instrument, but the product is the word from God. It is not the word about God. This is not just human beings reflecting upon their religious experiences as liberals and neo-Orthodox theologians hold. It is the word that comes from God, so that it is God's communication to man of who he is, who man is, what man's purpose is, and what God has done for man in providing life and for providing salvation. So all scripture is breathed out by God. That means that there's nothing more important than to know what God has said, because God has spoken. If God has spoken, then is there anything in life that is more important than understanding what God has said? Now, if God has not spoken, then we're all just kind of wallowing around in a, in a cesspool of ignorance. But if God has spoken, then there's nothing more significant than for us to know and to understand exactly what God has said. Furthermore... 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we, that is believers, have the mind of Christ. So that the Bible is the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It explains to us how God thinks. It is not only revelation designed to communicate certain things to us from God, but it gives us his way of thinking. Now, as I take time to reflect upon the Word of God and how it is structured and how it was revealed, it's not the way that most of us would do it. If most of us were going to write a book that's going to be an instruction manual for everybody, it would look pretty much like most uh, human instruction manuals. That means most of the time we'd leave something out. You're just thinking about this on Christmas morning when you're trying to put some toy together or assemble some product you that was purchased at some store. You know, remember how it was when most of us were kids? You bought stuff and they came assembled. Now nothing comes assembled. You have to get home and somebody in some third world country drew, drew pictures that to try to communicate to us how to put it together. And they've never used anything like this before in their life. And so uh, it, it's quite a challenge sometimes to figure those things out. But God has communicated this to us for the purpose of being understood. So the, our presupposition is that it's not con- designed to be confusing. It's de- designed to open things up. It's designed to be enlightening. It's designed to be informative. So when people sit down and they open their Bible and say, read and say, you know, I'm really confused, they, they immediately are making a mistake. They may not understand some things, But the Bible wasn't written to cloud your mind or to confuse you. It was written to clarify, to explain, and to enlighten. And so you have to approach the word that, okay, if I don't understand this, I can understand it. It is understandable. I just don't have what I need to understand it right now. So that's our starting point. The other, the next thing is that God wrote this in such a way that it could communicate truth to people in any historical situation, in any language, and in any uh, cultural context. 
so that whether you are a more primitive Southeast Asian or a more technically sophisticated and educated Western European, whether you are an African or whether you are an Indian in South America, whether you live up in the North Pole or you live down in Tierra del Fuego, wherever you are, you can understand what God has communicated. Now, that's, that is incredible because if you know anything about Islam, the Quran can only be understood if it's read in Arabic. You just can't understand it, according to Islam uh, theologians, if you read it in any other language. But the Bible was written in such a way so that it can be translated, and even if you don't have access to the original languages, you can understand the message of the Bible. You can understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can understand that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can understand that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. You can understand the truth of Scripture without knowing the original languages. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't help to know the original languages, but you don't have to know the original languages to understand the truth of Scripture. That is one of the marvelous aspects of how God designed this. Furthermore, God articulated His truth in different literary formats, what scholars call genres, different literary types. You have historical genre, you have legal genre. Uh, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the whole structure is based on law, the Mosaic law. You have poetry and Job, Psalms. In fact, uh, almost over 50% of the Old Testament is written in poetry. Almost all the prophets are written in poetry. Uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes are all written in poetry. Uh, many of the sections within the, even the historical narrative books from Genesis to Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther are all are all written and in, in, have poetry and poetic sections within them. So God communicates through historical narrative, through, liter, uh, through legal literature, through poetry, through more didactic uh, explanatory messages such as the epistles in the New Testament, through historical gospel tracts. They're not history, they're not biography, they're gospels. They're written to explain the good news that Christ died on the cross for our sins. So God uses all of these different literary structures in order to communicate truth. And each different structure has different uh, characteristics and different aspects to it. Now, if you and I were writing an instruction manual, we would sit down and we would write something, especially if it had to do with the Bible, we would write a doctrinal, a categorical doctrinal notebook. We would write a systematic theology. But that's not what God did. God, in fact, the Old Testament is, for the most part, historical narrative. You even have a tremendous amount of historical uh, narrative, historical information given in the prophets in the Old Testament. Why does God reveal himself that way? Then you get into the New Testament. You have historical narrative in the Gospels and Acts. And then you have prophetic literature and revelation and you just have the didactic doctrinal sections in the epistles. Why does God do it that way? Because he wants you to think about what you're reading. The analogy that I like to use is the analogy of creation. God created everything, all the different life forms, all the different kinds, and he then called upon Adam and he said, 
I want you to name the animals. Now, that doesn't mean he's just going to go around and, well, that looks like that, that Sparky over there and, you know, that tall animal with the long neck over there, well, we'll call him Spot. Uh, he has to analyze, categorize, and classify all of these species. It's going to take time. He, he just began the process in that uh, early chapter of Genesis. Every biologist today is still carrying on that process. It's through the, through, through the process of inductive uh, re- logic and reasoning and the analysis of all of the data that they come to more and more conclusions and understandings about the nature of God's creation. And so then we have the, used to have just science. Then you had science broken down into uh, physics and metaphysics. Then you went from physics to biology, uh, physics, zoology, botany, dendrology, all the various sciences. And the more we study, the more we classify, and the more we create subcategories. And the same thing happens in the study of God's Word. We're given the core elements in the Word of God in order to force us to think deeply and profoundly about what God has said. If God gave this to us in a list format as a systematic theology, we'd go memorize it and go on our way. But what God has done is to give it to us in such a way that it forces us to engage our thinking with His revelation in order to see how it applies to our thinking in every dimension of life as we go through life. So that it is a never-ending process of study and learning and growth and development. And you can't just stop at any point in the Christian life and say, well, I've learned it all. Because it's a never-ending process. There's always more to analyze, more to understand. You can go back into the Old Testament and you read through the narratives in Samuel and Kings and there's so much there that has to do with law and government and politics and the structure of society. And the more you study, the more there is to study. The more you then are forced to go out and to read about uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures and what was happening and what was going on and it, it, it builds our understanding today of, of government, law, and politics. In fact, this is what the Puritans were doing back in the 17th century and 18th century as they were delving deeply into the Old Testament. Now, we may not have always agreed with their theology or their eschatology or, their, or other aspects of what they were doing, but they understood the principle. And it was on the basis of their in-depth study of the Word and not just the, the clergy, the pastors and the theologians, but the everyday believers who were uh, interested in science, who were interested in law, who were interested in government. They were getting into the Word in order to extrapolate uh, these principles. So this is all part of what the Scripture emphasizes when it talks about the fact that we need to exchange the human viewpoint thinking in our soul for divine viewpoint thinking. It comes from an in-depth study of the Word of God. So the Bible is important because it's the Word of God. It's important because it's the thinking of Christ. And then it is important because it is the source of light. It illuminates our thinking in every area. So that the psalmist concludes 
in Psalm 19.10, more to be desired are they, that is the knowledge of Scripture, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. This is a priority for the believer priest is to know the Word of God. Now, next time, what I want to do is come back and bring this to another level of try to get it down to a different level of practicality for us. What all does that mean? And go to look at subjects such as meditation, the, the importance of every individual believer reading the Word of God to know the Word of God, how to read the Word of God. How can you come to understand the Word of God and read it for yourself? What are the principles? What's its value? And eventually, I want to get into some things related to uh, how, what kind of Bible you should read. I get questions all the time. Well, what translation should I use? What study Bible? The, the difference between a translation and a study Bible. A lot of folks don't, don't know things like that. Uh, what about uh, the newer translations that are coming now? A lot of questions like that. So we'll address some of those next time. This morning was designed to focus on the fact that the Word of God is a priority for you as a believer priest. It needs to be at the center of your life, the first thing in your scale of values, because if the Bible is not at the, at the center of your life, in terms, and, and not just the knowledge of the Bible for academic's sake, but the knowledge of the Bible in terms of your relationship with the Lord, if that's not at the center of your life, then nothing else will come together. But when the Bible is at the center of your life and the highest priority in your life, then all the other aspects of your life come together and relate to one another in ways that you'll, you'll never appreciate until you get to the end of your life. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, and that this involves being retrained, having our thinking reprogrammed to completely exchange the human viewpoint ideas in our soul with the divine viewpoint truth in the scriptures. Father, we thank you that the motivation for this is your grace because your grace provided us with a perfect salvation. A salvation that's not based on who we are or what we've done, but a salvation that is based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. There he paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future, so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is trusting in Christ for our salvation. This morning, if you've never put your faith alone in Christ alone, this is your opportunity to receive God's gift, his free gift of eternal life. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of good works. It's not a matter of what you've done or haven't done in life. It's not a matter of religious affiliation. It is simply a matter of trust. Do you rely upon Jesus Christ and his work on the cross alone for your salvation? Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this morning. Uh, pray that God the Holy Spirit would make them real to us and that he would help us to see how to change our scale of values to fit that which is presented in the Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.